Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, girlies. While you're listening, you can put faces to the names and see all the locations, including a helpful little map of Greenwich Village and the interior of the Stonewall Inn, over on my Instagram at Queer Serial. And if you're a desktop kind of girl, that's okay. Instagram.com slash Queer Serial works too. This episode is part one. Next week is part two. And a special series finale episode is coming next month. When it's all over, my Patreon will be the place to find special Season 3 bonus episodes and interviews with real activists and voice actors, research dives, which are typically not safe for work, and a little behind the scenes of an upcoming sequel project to this podcast. 
All of that's at patreon.com slash queer serial. There are links to all of this in the episode notes. Finally, you probably already know this, but this podcast uses text from real homophile era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The podcast has identifying terms that may now be out of date. Do your homework. They ran from the southern tip of the island to escape the many epidemics of yellow fever and cholera. They went north to the Dutch farmland far enough away to escape the contagion, they hoped. There were already paths on this farmland from before colonization, left behind by the indigenous people who first lived there. So they put down roads on those paths, natural walking paths at odd angles, not created with vehicles in mind. Later, after these 18th century migrations, a plan to make all the streets on the entire island a grid is put in motion. But the citizens of this one little village resisted the grid plan. They wanted to keep their ties to the land's past. Greenwich Village becomes the only area in New York City north of Wall Street to keep their original streets from before the grid. The villagers had no idea they were creating the perfect battleground to outwit the colonizers' police. Seventh Avenue was extended south in 1914, cutting through the many one-way streets, making a direct route into the village. And with Sheridan Square's subway stop opening soon after, the neighborhood began to fill up with tea rooms and clubs. These spaces became speakeasies for the rebellious artists and intellectuals to meet. Naturally, gays, lesbians, and the gender variant found their home there. In the heart of Greenwich Village in the 1920s, the Jefferson Livery Stable at 51 and 53 Christopher Street became a French bakery and most desirable studio apartments before they're both later merged into a single building in 1934, a tea room. Not the tea rooms I'm usually talking about, bathrooms where men cruise, but an actual tea room. It's called Bonnie's Stone Wall, opening perhaps coincidentally the same year Mary Castle's autobiography is published, a lesbian romance called The Stone Wall. Bonnie's Stone Wall, the tea room, is thought to be named after its owner, Vincent Bonavia, who originally opened his Stone Wall restaurant at 91 7th Avenue South in 1930. Prohibition agents raided it in 1930 to reveal it as a speakeasy, noting it as one of the more notorious tea rooms in the village. But after Prohibition, Vincent reopened the tea room as a restaurant and bar in 1934, just around the corner at its new location. He installs a large vertical sign hanging over Christopher Street, Bonnie's Stonewall Inn. It becomes a popular location for banquets and wedding receptions, with guests posing for photographs by the indoor wishing well. These old buildings are delicate, though. They burn down easily. Just outside the bar, when it was a stable, a tenement building burned down and killed more than 40 people. The villagers would not allow a new building to be put on those grounds, so the small space in the center of these cross streets became Christopher Park. Later, in the 60s, the stone wall is also gutted by fire, and left vacant. 
The stone wall sits empty, scorched by fire, until 1967. The son of a mafia boss, nicknamed Fat Tony, buys the cheap old building. His dad thinks running a fag bar is low-class mafia work, but Fat Tony knows he's going to make a killing. He knows all the shortcuts. Instead of replacing the burned wood, Tony and his associates paint everything black, the walls, the ceiling, everything. They tear down the Greek Revival columns and put in heavy oak doors. Like all gay bars, the windows are blacked out and reinforced with plywood and 2x4s in order to keep cops from quickly sweeping through the place. A quick coat of stucco covers the exposed brick of the building's dilapidated facade, and they take the word restaurant off the vertical stonewall end sign. Tony doesn't bother coming up with a new name for his business. The sign's already here. Tony's pals, Zuki Zarfas, Tony the Sniff, and Maddie the Horse put in $500 each, and they're ready to open one of the, if not the, largest gay bars in the country. They hire some managers, one of whom was recently indicted, a mobster who posed as a Hilton Hotel house detective, centering himself in a blackmail ring that targeted wealthy homosexuals. Edward Murphy, a.k.a. The Skull. On the Stonewall's first night of business, they all make back their investments, plus profit. The 1969 Homosexual Handbook by Angelo D'Arcangelo describes the bar. There's a certain hastiness about the look of the place. It seems to have only been recently converted from a garage into a cabaret in about eight hours and at a cost of under $50. Why invest a ton of money into something you know is going to get shut down any day? Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine secretly plans his second raid on the Stonewall this week for just after midnight on June 28th, 1969. Previously. What are you doing in here? The new bar that opened up around the corner tonight, the Stonewall, they're all over there. It's packed. You can cruise and camp and find your family. Throughout the Stonewall clientele, there are femme gays, lesbians, street queens, drag queens, gender nonconforming and trans queers, leather gays, white people, people of color, young people, poor people, but most of all, people who look too queer to get in anywhere else. Since the SLA refuses to issue licenses to gay bars, these bars are generally run under unsanitary conditions. Craig is furious and decides to write about it relentlessly in his new bookstore's gay publication, Hymnal. The Stone Wall continues operating amid persistent rumors of closing. The manager of the bar was Edward F.P. Murphy, also known as The Skull, an ex-convict who is alleged to have been the head of the National Ring, which recently was active in extorting money from homosexuals. Now his empire is rebuilding on a new but classic scheme for exploiting gay people. Cheaply run bars that pay off the cops. The crowds of queers desperate for a bar protected from police should disguise the Skull's other dealings inside. Gay power's invincible rise. Don't get discouraged at slow progress. I learned long ago that things move with excruciating slowness. The Jewel Box show, billed as 25 men and a girl, captivates audiences trying to figure out who the one woman is. It's revealed at the end 
that the woman is a masculine lesbian named Stormé Delarvier wearing a tailored suit. In Chicago, Miss Major is going to the balls. They work all year on their gowns for the South City Ball and the Maypole Ball. And I fought for three years to put a fourth police platoon on the streets, and that was no mistake. The captain of Brooklyn's 10th Division, Seymour Pine, is called into the office of Chief Inspector Sanford Garrelick. While working the Skulls, Chickens, and the Bulls case, the NYPD discovered collusion between the Mafia and employees of a federal depository, who happened to be frequent guests of a Mafia bar called the Stonewall. Perhaps these federal depository employees have been blackmailed by the Mafia with their gay secret, just like the National Extortion Ring. Deputy Inspector Pine is ordered to shut down these clubs especially the Stonewall Inn. If you want to make a bust, that's your business. We'll be open again tomorrow. So he accepts the challenge. He'll plan a surprise bust that shuts the Stonewall down for good. Martha Shelley meets up with two women from Boston. She's going to give them a tour of the lesbian bars in the village. Dick Leish listens to the radio while he packs a suitcase for a trip to Europe with his lover. Sylvia Rivera is getting back home to New York City from a trip to D.C. with her lover. She's wearing a women's suit she made herself. Lots of makeup and hair. She looks good. And she wants to go out. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America from the beginning to Stonewall. A street queen named Opera Jean walks through the village and spots a young, clearly gay boy panhandling. His name is Tommy Lanigan Schmidt. Excuse me, you drop your hairpin, Mary? I'm not Mary. Mary, Grace, Allison, what difference does it make? After all, we're all sisters, aren't we? But I'm a man. How do you end up here? I failed out of art school, so my dad tried to put me on a ditch-digging crew. I went out for the newspaper and caught a train. Oh, and hiding from Dad. Well, I know a thing or two about that. If you need a place to stay, I have one. Oh, thanks. Come on. They call me Opera Jean. You? Tommy. Oh, Linda. We gotta get you a better name. Why is that? Everyone's got one. I've got a boyfriend we call Wilma. Sometimes my sisters call me Sister Tui, but that's because they caught me stealing their two-and-all from their medicine cabinet. Tommy meets the queens. We met a few last week, but let's meet some more. Tommy meets Bambi, who has big eyes. She's always got a bottle and a bag in her hand. She stops traffic in the middle of the street to tap on windows and ask for change from the drivers. There's Nellie, also known as Betsy Mae Kulo, who is a very young and femme Latina hustler. There's Orphan Annie. She has a red afro and hollow eyes. She says her wealthy grandmother sends her money. A black queen they call Congo Woman throws bricks through shop windows to steal wigs and dresses. She carries a stone in her purse for self-defense. And there's Irish Sylvia, who had a drug problem. Many will wonder if she was high when she fell off the roof of the St. George Hotel and died. Some will wonder if she was pushed. And of course, there's the legendary Miss Marsha P. Johnson and the other queens we met last week. Many of the street queens are runaways, like Tommy. 
That's why they take him in. One of his new friends has a scar from a burn down his face and body from his mother, who didn't want men to be tempted by her son's good looks anymore. Another has a clothing iron scar on his ass. Others have boiling water or glass scars. Many have been kicked out of the military with nowhere to go, sleeping on benches, fighting over public spaces, stealing to eat. Sometimes they team up to distract shop owners while others grab something for dinner. Some have died in the winter. Some have been killed and found in the Hudson River. The queens carry nail files and scissors to protect themselves. And in case they're arrested for soliciting or loitering, they can just say the weapons are for their nails. Villagers even throw things from their windows at the women. But sometimes one queen will get enough cash to get a hotel room, and she'll invite all her friends to crash in the room. The street queers look out for each other. Hey, Miss Polkadot. Out walking with his family down Greenwich Avenue, Tommy sees his crush, a young, masculine, Puerto Rican guy who loves to wear shirts with polka dots. Tommy knows nothing will come of his flirtatious calls to the boy because he's apparently a favorite of the village's well-known mafia pimp, the Skull. Miss Polkadot rolls his eyes at Tommy's call, and Tommy runs up to him. Suddenly, a car pulls up, and some men jump out to grab Miss Polkadot. They pull away, and Tommy never sees him again. No one does. Rumors spread. Maybe he stole something from the Skull. Or maybe he cheated on him. No one is shocked to hear it, though. According to historian David Carter, the Skull has a reputation for making his boyfriends disappear, going back to the early 60s when he worked at a waterfront gay bar called Dirty Dicks. Many young men were last seen there. There are other somewhat safer ways to work the village. Other young hustlers often meet up in Christopher Park, They tie their shirts in midriff knots and let their hair grow long. There's a guy that's often there named Bob Kohler, who walks his dog Magoo. Kohler sometimes holds stolen items and money for the hustlers, while they run back to the piers to turn a few more tricks. Here comes Betty Badge. He's charmed by the street kids and their machine-gun-fast dialogue. They're quick-witted, competitive, and they're clever reads. Here comes the bubblegum machine. Our cop car. Cops have this one big round light on top of their cars. The kids hand Bob all their stolen items for safekeeping and leave him and Magoo in Christopher Park, running off to the piers, off to work the streets, off to meet friends in the bars. At the 1st Division headquarters on East 21st Street, Inspector Seymour Pine is ready to present his plan. He gathers his team for a midnight meeting. Two policewomen from Chinatown's 5th Precinct, five public morals officers, all in plain clothes to work undercover. He also has a search warrant from the DA issued by a judge yesterday. He can search the premises of the Stonewall, seize alcohol, and cut the bars up and take them out with the vending equipment. Normally a warrant isn't needed, but Pine wants to be sure these charges against the bar stick, rather than letting a mafia lawyer use a lack of a warrant as a reason to get the charges dropped. To strengthen his case, Pine also asks for the city to send an inspector from the Department of Consumer Affairs. 
Inspector Adam Tatum is sent to the meeting. Now the city's own expert will be citing infractions. Pine also requested a federal agent from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to come with them. They sent Pine a message saying a federal agent will meet them there at the bar to take a sample of the liquor. Pine knows the Stonewall is watering down their liquor, which is against federal law. One of the more minor laws they're breaking. The team is ready. Inspector Pine sends two of the five morals officers, along with the two policewomen and Inspector Tatum. They'll go to the Stonewall early to observe in plain clothes. They need to witness illegal alcohol being served, and, of course, queer customers dancing and breaking various laws. And who is mixing and pouring drinks? Who serves them? Who is giving orders to the staff? They need to know who exactly to arrest. The policewomen change into street clothes, drive down, and approach the door of the Stonewall Inn. They're in. 30 minutes later, Inspector Pine, Officer Charles Smith, and the two other plainclothes morals officers leave the 1st Division headquarters. They get in their own cars, not recognizable bubblegum machine cop cars. Pine drives with Smith in his car, and they park a few blocks from the Stonewall. The four officers rendezvous in Christopher Park, watching the bar from the bushes. Tommy arrives at the bar, his favorite gay bar, and the doorman examines him through the slats. Not looking queer enough tonight, it seems. Tommy is turned away, and he walks away down Christopher Street. Meanwhile, Craig Rodwell and his lover are leaving their friend's place near NYU and heading home. Men are out cruising down Greenwich. It's unusually hot, still one of the hottest days on record in New York City. Inspector Pine watches the Stonewall's entrance for the two undercover men to exit. Finally, they do, and cross Christopher into the park. The team waits for the undercover women to follow out, their signal to raid the place. They wait. For a long time. 1 a.m., 1.10, 1.15 in the morning. Inspector Pine says... Something is wrong. Think someone spotted the guns in their purses? It's strangely busy in there tonight. Yeah. They might be in trouble. We can't wait any longer. He looks at the officer with the radio telephone. You wait here. Let's go, fellas. They cross the narrow street to the bar. Pine bangs on the door. Police! We're taking the place! Several seconds pass. Inside, the lights go up and the music stops. Blonde Frankie, the doorman, takes his time turning the locks. One by one. Future activists Morty Manford and Sylvia Rivera look around, knowing what's coming. Miss Major, who just moved here after being kicked out of college again for being trans in Chicago, she just met up with her girlfriend when the lights went up. Bartenders are stuffing cash into their pockets and jumping over the bar into the crowd. Suddenly, cops storm in. Inspector Pine sees Inspector Tatum in plain clothes, sitting at the bar, hitting on a trans woman. Pine doesn't want to give the undercover officer away, so he and his officers walk by without saying anything to him. The men move through the confused crowd, most people wondering what the cops will want them to do. 
One officer goes to the payphone to call the 6th precinct and ask for backup. Oh god, are we gonna be arrested? The cops go to the back room and push people out onto the main dance floor. They check the bathrooms, pulling people out by the arm. Over there! Everyone to the east side of the room. Go-Go boys climb out of their cages and put their clothes on, and the front doors are locked. Where were you two? When we arrived, the bartenders were changing shifts and we wanted to be able to identify staff from both shifts. There's a manager there. She points. And those two are bartenders who served us. Other cops gather up the alcohol. Pine notes that none of the bottles in the storage room have labels, while other officers are separating customers into two lines. Inspector Tatum is surprised to see the woman he was flirting with standing in the so-called transvestites line. Stonewall employees are sent to the back room for questioning. They watch the officers break down the benches and clear out the bar. Cops begin checking IDs in the line and letting some people leave. Uniformed, six precinct officers are gathering at the door. People stuck in line pass word down that cops won't let them leave without proper ID. Some people don't have ID, but others have extra IDs with them, without photos, like a Bloomingdale's credit card, so they share with other people. While they wait, cops wreck the place. Okay, let's go in and check you out. Trans women are lined up at the bathroom for the female officers to examine their genitals. They'll often just comply, say, okay, arrest me, I'm a man, and then they don't have to be examined. But sometimes they are anyway. Other times, trans men and women are sexually assaulted by male officers. Tonight, they get examined. Get your hands off me! I ain't going in there, don't touch me! The police women push them into the bathroom. Inspector Pine feels the tone of the room beginning to change. The noisier trans girls are put under arrest and held in the coat closet. A group of lesbians stand back from the line, against the back wall. Time to go. Get in line. We have a right to be here. A couple cops grab and frisk the women, pushing them up against the wall. Pine feels the quiet anger. Everyone in line, wide-eyed, as the women are pushed around. If anyone says anything or asks a question, the cops ignore them. Finally, the line makes progress. More patrons are let go as patrol cars from the 6th precinct pull up outside the stone wall. Inspector Smith watches the officers carry out all the tagged bottles of liquor. You're almost finished? 28 cases of beer, 19 bottles of liquor, no room in the wagon for the fags waiting in the coat closet. I wasn't planning on arresting so many tonight. Pine calls emergency service, requesting both bars to be cut up and removed, along with the jukebox. They clean the place out. The patrons who weren't arrested and allowed to leave, they linger outside on Christopher Street, chatting. They gather in Christopher Park and watch the wagon get loaded up with liquor. Typically, customers let go from a raided bar just wander off to another one or go back home. But some of the Stonewall's customers have friends inside possibly getting arrested, or they're waiting to see what became of the women who are being pushed around. There's still anger in the air. People talk about how the Stonewall was just raided on Tuesday night. Someone mentions the Kew Gardens vigilantes cutting down the trees. And there have been lots of raids on various other bars, like the Checkerboard and the Sewer. Come on, Patty Pig. It's hot out here. <laughs> Down the block, on the corner of Christopher and 7th Avenue South, a reporter is sitting at his typewriter in the Village Voice offices. 
He notices several police cars outside his window on Christopher, so he grabs his binoculars. A growing crowd. Howard Smith grabs his notepads and his blue plastic press pass, throws it around his neck, and runs downstairs. He walks up to the cops outside the bar. Officer, can I ask you a few questions? Every time I blink, there are more people out here. Lucian Truscott, another Village Voice reporter, comes out of the lion's head and sees the crowd. Howard lets him into the voice office to grab his press badge, too. They split up to check out the scene. They won't see each other again tonight. Villagers passing by join the crowd, trying to see what everyone is waiting for. One young gay guy passing by the bar stops, sees the crowd, and the cop stationed by the stonewall door, and says, Oh, hello there, fella. Tommy comes back to the bar to try the doorman again, to find the giant crowd standing there. Suddenly, the oak doors open, and out come the queens, one at a time. The police are letting some leave. Thank you. Thank you. Stonewall favorites exit the bar to cheers. They camp it up, bowing and throwing up their arms into proud poses, strutting down Christopher into the crowd. She bows, and another queen exits the Stonewall. Have you seen Maxine? Where is my wife? I told her not to go far. Howard Smith, the village voice reporter, peeks into the bar and spots the cops pushing the arrested people around, kicking them. A patrol wagon pulls up on Christopher, parking partly on the sidewalk in front of the stone wall, facing against traffic. Craig Rodwell and his lover pass by Sheridan Square on their way home and see the crowd. Craig has seen raids before, but this is strange. A crowd of about 500 now. An eerily quiet crowd. Outside the Mafia bar, Craig has been criticizing in his bookshop's newsletter. He pulls his lover into the mass, going for the tallest stoop on Christopher, just west of the bar. Inspector Pine comes out of the stone wall. Oh, there she is, the devil with the blue dress on. He's surprised to see such a huge crowd. Usually everyone just leaves. Pine brings out his prisoners and the evidence collected, which means the raid is over. But he only has the one wagon and several people arrested. Pine isn't too worried. He's never seen homosexuals fight back before. But this is odd. He calls the precinct on the radio telephone. I need a backup patrol wagon at 51 Christopher. A mysterious voice responds. Disregard that call. 51 Christopher. I, I need to back up. Not sure who that is, Pine decides to try again in a few minutes. Outside, the cops load the mafia employees into the first wagon. Craig Rodwell shouts from the stoop, Get the mob out of the bars! Gay power! Gay power! Bartenders, coat check boys, and the men's room attendant, John, come out of the bar. Next, the drag queens and trans women. Bob Kohler walks by with Magoo and sees his young friends in Christopher Park, surrounded by hundreds, watching the arrested queens wave goodbye. Have a good rest, darling. She needs rest. <laughs> Don't touch me! A cop shoves a queen. She turns and hits him over the head with her purse. He clubs her. 
turn the paddy wagon over. Well, Lily Law's got you, girl. A guy in a dark red t-shirt shouts, Nobody's gonna fuck with me. I ain't gonna take this shit. People run over to the payphones. Jerry, you're not gonna believe this. Doug, you gotta come down to the stone wall. Tell Carol, too. There's a bust on the stone wall. Others run down the cross streets, announcing the raid to the villagers. Everyone, please go home. Back up and go home. Someone shouts back at the cops. Pig! The cop grabs him and brandishes his nightstick. Just say that again. That would be rather silly. The cop shoves him back. Pennies come flying. You already got the paywall, and here's some more. A beer can hits the stone wall's front door. Anybody still getting their ass kicked in there? We want Tommy, the blonde drag queen. Suddenly, the doors open, and out comes Tommy, also known as Tammy Novak in her blonde wig. She walks coolly into the crowd. Then comes Maria Ritter, a young trans girl who just turned 18 tonight. She's hauled into the car by a flirtatious police officer. Jesus, I can't believe you're a boy. I'm not a boy. You don't understand I'm a girl, but it's real hard for me to explain to you. Come on, let's go. He puts her into the wagon with the other queens. Maria knows it's gonna be tough at home if she's on the news, or if her photo is in the paper, wearing her mom's dress. The wagon is already packed, but the doors open again to bring in more queens. Maria politely steps out of the way to allow more room for others to enter. Excuse me. She quietly walks away. The flirty officer sees her. Hey, you! Come over here! Please! It's my birthday, I'm 18, and my mother's gonna kill me. Her mascara is running. The cop looks the other way and gives her the motion to keep walking. Maria runs for it. Don't be so rough! The stone wall doors open again, and a lesbian is brought out in handcuffs. She doesn't come out bowing. She's furious. Clearly, she's been fighting with the police inside, likely because they're arresting her for not wearing three pieces of clothing matching her assigned gender. She's short, in pants with short hair, pulling away from the officers who tug at her very tight handcuffs. They're using the type of Spanish cuffs that tighten the more someone struggles. She might be the drag king, Stormé Delarvier, from the Jewel Box Review. If this woman wasn't Stormé, Stormé is at least in the crowd tonight. The woman slips away from the cops, and one hits her over the head with his club. Blood runs down her face as she's pulled back up. A few more cops join in to pull her to the paddy wagon, and she fights every step of the way. Finally, they get her into the car, closing the door, and it comes flying open again. She slides back out and runs. Officers jump on her, and she fights them all the way back to the stone wall doors. Fuck off! Get off me! Why don't you guys do something? Let's pay them off! Stop throwing your money. Dirty copper. The cops pull her back to the wagon and push her inside. She gets out again, and a cop pushes her back in. The crowd pushes forward. Pigs! Let's turn it over. Pine gives his orders. Get these three cars in the wagon out of here immediately. Hurry back. Just drop them at the 6th precinct and hurry back. I'm gonna slice up those motherfuckers' tires. You got a knife? The paddy wagon stops. 
a cobblestone comes flying, landing on the trunk of a police car. The cop next to it jumps. Uniformed and plainclothes police move into the crowd. Some officers use their billy clubs to trip people, and plainclothes cops start pushing back on the crowd. Jackie Hormona punches a cop. Ray Castro is handcuffed and shoved against the police wagon. The officers open the doors to put him inside. He puts both feet on the doors and springs back into the crowd, knocking four cops to the ground. They jump back up, and villagers try to pull Castro away from the officers, all while prisoners are escaping from the patrol wagon. The Skull and Blonde Frankie, handcuffed together, jump out of the wagon and run for it. They take a taxi to Keller's, an S&M bar, where a dominatrix uses her key to get them out of their handcuffs. Somehow, the half-empty patrol wagon finally pulls away from the stone wall, and the cops are left behind, waiting for a ride out. Move back! Move back! The massive crowd now reaches back to 7th Avenue South. There's possibly a construction site there, possibly with a pile of bricks. Inspector Pine is left with eight plainclothes cops, including the two women who went into the bar first, and an officer from the 6th Precinct the last remaining uniformed officer. Pennies hit the reporter, Howard Smith. He backs up against the Stonewall's door. Ten feet of space separate the reporter and the officers from the crowd. Nickels come flying. Then quarters. A glass bottle. A few more glass bottles. A famous folk musician, Dave Van Ronk, flips a coin into Officer Weissman's face, clipping him under the right eye. Dave, a hetero, just happened to be having dinner at the Lion's Head and decided to join in. Officer Weissman covers his face, now bloody from the coin. Three cops charge for Dave. A beer can hits Inspector Smith on the head as Dave Van Ronk almost slips away. But Pine dives on him, grabbing Van Ronk by the waist. Pine and Van Ronk fight while two officers grab hold of Dave and drag him his head banging against the ground, all the way into the stone wall. They handcuffed his left hand to the radiator near the floor and kick him over and over. Inspector Pine goes back outside. His officers look panicked. Let's get inside. Lock ourselves inside. It's safe. Howard Smith looks down at his press card. You want to come in? You're probably safe. The other reporter must be somewhere out in the crowd. Howard thinks... I've been standing here with the cops, so if I stay outside, will the crowd assume I'm a plainclothes cop too? Or will they see my press card? Should I cover the story from the inside? Reinforcements are supposed to be coming soon, so... Why not? Oh, I'll I'll go inside. Fine. Come on. Right now. Into the stone wall go Inspectors Pine, Smith, and Tatum, Officer Weissman, six plainclothes officers reporter Howard Smith, and a few remaining prisoners, including a bartender and musician Dave Van Ronk. They shut the big oak doors behind them. Inspector Pine had wanted to join the FBI, but his dad said Jewish people don't get into the FBI. When Pine was drafted into the war, he improved the military's training methods in hand-to-hand combat fighting. Pine actually wrote the manual for the Army. As a captain, He survived a mine explosion in the Battle of the Bulge, the same battle Frank Kameny served in. Pine and Kameny both felt shells drop as they laid in foxholes. Pine kept cool 
helped keep his troops stay calm. Now, he barricades behind a gay bar's doors, pushing tables up against the plywood on the window. He'll later say it's the most terrified he's ever felt. Inspector Smith also fought in the war alongside Pine. Tonight, he's shaking, and he'll still be shaking tomorrow. The reporter, Howard, is surprised by how dark it is inside the stone wall, and it reeks of beer. I need backup at 51 Christopher. Back outside. The garbage can Village Voice reporter Lucian Truscott is standing on is pulled from beneath him and thrown into the stone wall's west window. Something else hits a window on the second floor. The lower left pane, just above the entrance. Diana Davies took a photo. The street kids move toward the bar, but Bob tries to stop one because he has a court case pending. Stay out of this, Billy. Don't get involved. The kids leave Bob and Magoo and search for more empty bottles. Rioting is broken out in Greenwich Village outside the Stonewall Inn with reports of several... Dick Leish forgets his packing, turns off his radio, and runs to Christopher Street. Marsha P. Johnson and Zazu Nova both get to the Stonewall and start throwing rocks. The bar door cracks open and an arm waves, a gun... The officer shouts, Stay back! Stay back! The reporter, the arrested, and the officers watch the trash and bottles break cracks in the black plywood on the windows. They each take turns peeking out through the cracks of the crowd to see how big it's getting out there. It seems like thousands. Some people are standing on cars, screaming. The faces close by are full of rage. Where are the reinforcements? I don't know. There must be some mix-up. Small scraps of paper slip through the holes in the plywood. Little puffs of smoke. Somebody's setting trash on fire with cigarette lighters. The kids slip it in the window and run in case the police fire at them. People keep encouraging each other to go a little further, try something a little more wild. One group grabs onto a parking meter, the loose one that the street kids like to swing on. They rock back and forth on it now and pull it up from the ground. A group carries it over and thrusts it up against the doors using it as a battering ram against the stone wall. The villagers are thrilled. They batter a window, too, and ram against the plywood board. Then they back up all the way to Christopher Park and take a running start. Peeking through the cracks in the plywood boards, they see a wire trash can go up in flames on Christopher Street. People in the apartments down Grove Street, the other side of Christopher Park, start throwing their own glass bottles down at the crowd. A queen grabs a twisted piece of metal and smashes the rest of the bar's first-story windows out. The doors begin to give. Howard feels the floor inside the stone wall shuddering with every blow to the doors. Until the doors are busted open. Liberate the bar! In the park, people are pouring liquid into Coke bottles. The officers inside try to hold the door shut. Every time the crowd gets them open, bottles and debris fly in. Outside, a queen smears oranges across a car's windshield. The guy inside the car opens his door. You motherfucking bitch! She didn't realize the driver was gay. Oh my god, I'm so sorry, honey. She runs away. Craig Rodwell makes it to a payphone. 
He calls the New York Post, the Daily News, and the New York Times to make sure this is in the papers. This is the spark they've been waiting for. This is their rebellion. Martha Shelley walks by, giving two Daughters of Belitis members from Boston a tour of the neighborhood. What's going on? Oh, just a riot. We have them here all the time. Let's go. Bricks fly. Maybe, if there were bricks there. It's mayhem, but no one can leave. No one wants to. They have to know what happens next. The battering ram hits the bar's west window, the coat check room, almost passing right through the plywood. It gives... The officers take out their pistols and check to make sure they're loaded. The reporter backs up, terrified. He looks behind the bar for a weapon, finding the hose and the fire axe on the wall. He slides the axe under his belt so he can keep taking notes. Inspector Pine laughs, nervous. A bottle flies in through the broken window, bursting into flames. The crowd outside watches the smoke drift out the window. One of the officers grabs the extinguisher and puts the fire out. But of course, the extinguisher quickly runs out. The Mafia didn't even put in fire exits, just the one front door. The Molotov cocktails keep coming. Officers grab the fire hose off the wall, but a water hose can't put out a bunch of gasoline cocktails. They wait nervously. Outside, the crowd, including Dick Leish now, watches as someone approaches the bar, pulls a can of lighter fluid from their pocket, and pours it all over the plywood on the front of the stone wall. They light a match and drop it on the wood. Blue flames sparkle across the bar. It burns out quick, and it's gone. I need a backup at 51 Christopher. Someone grabs the stone wall's phone to call for help, but the phone lines are dead. Inspector Pine turns to his officers. Anyone who fires their gun without me saying fire is going to be in big, big trouble. You'll be walking the loneliest beat on Staten Island for the rest of your career. Everyone is sweating. Pine goes down the line, placing a hand on each cop's shoulder. How do you feel, Joe? He uses each person's first name and makes sure each person responds to him. Everyone calms down and breathes. Pine pretends this is normal, but everyone knows it's not. How do you feel, Howard? Howard isn't taking notes anymore. He clutches the axe. I'm okay. But I'd feel a lot better if you had the axe and I had the gun. (laughs) You stand over there and don't leave that spot. You wash the door. You wash the corridor. You, I want you in the back part of the bar in case there's some way in that we don't know about. You stand back there. I want two on the door. Guns drawn. Nobody fires unless I say fire. Pine knows that firing on a crowd will not help them. Logically, even if the cops were to open fire, the crowd would still overwhelm them. Will have to overwhelm them. They'll be killed. Dave Van Ronk watches the whole scene from the floor, still cuffed to the radiator. Howard, Smith, and the other officers search for an escape. Some officers find a vent in the back by the roof, and they push one of the policewomen through. Go across the roof to West 10th to the firehouse and call for more help. The plywood is pulled off the bar's western window. One of the big plywood windows gives and it seems inevitable that the mob will pour in. Pine and the officers grab the fire hose, aim for the door, slip it outside, and turn the water all the way up. A weak dribble pours out and drips onto the sidewalk. Protesters dance in the small trickle of the hose. 
Grab it! Grab his cock! Grab it! The officers slip on the water, running back inside, and Pine tells them to stop. The doors come blasting open again as a flaming wire trash can soars through the western window into the coat check. Smoke fills Bonnie's stone wall in and billows out onto Christopher Street. The coat check room burns. The closet, literally, set on fire. Trash and debris, maybe some bricks, rain down on the rest of the boarded windows. The parking meter puts a huge hole through one. The officers try to douse the flames with the hose again while they watch the crowd move in on the bar. Nobody fire. Nobody fire. Let's back up if we have to. Help's gonna be coming. A few more cans of lighter fluid are tossed in, along with some lit matches. Howard watches an arm slip inside a window and squirt more lighter fluid, and then a lit match. Inspector Pine, standing by Howard, also notices the hand in the window setting the fire. He turns and aims his gun at the hand, puts his finger on the trigger, and then... Outside, two fire trucks circle Christopher Park, with a returning patrol wagon behind them. The crowd outside moves around the trucks. The policewoman has saved the cops from the queers. Lucky them. Howard breathes again. The officers and the arrested people all check in with one another, making sure they're all okay. They giggle with relief while Howard catches up on his notes. The people around me change back to cops. They began examining the place. Six precinct officers sweep the streets, clearing the way to the stone wall. Inspector Pine, the reporter Howard Smith, the officers, and their arrested walk outside. Howard stays close to Pine, worried he'll still be mistaken for a cop if he walks off to his office down the block. Patrol cars pull up. Fourteen officers and three sergeants from the 4th, 5th, and 10th precincts. Pine goes to one of the cars and calls for an ambulance for Officer Weissman's eye, and then he loads the wagon with the rest of the booze and the people he's arrested including Van Ronk, now finally uncuffed from the radiator. Pine marches the bartender, the musician, and the queens down Christopher Street to the wagon as the crowd rages around them. At the wagon, the trans women resist the cops, refusing to get in. More girls join in the fight and rough up the officers. Miss Major is hit over the head by a cop. They're all arrested and forced into the wagon. The Tactical Patrol Force arrives. Two buses of riot police march into formation. These elite officers are kept waiting in reserve around the city for potential riot outbreaks. A big concern for Mayor Lindsay at this time. Behind their enormous shields, they have tear gas. They wear large helmets with plastic visors. They march up East Christopher Street against traffic, stopping at the corner of 7th Avenue. They watch the fairies flutter around in Christopher Park until the fairies turn to them, throwing bottles and trash. Magoo watches from Bob's arms. These sick fags and dykes and trannies and queers have never retaliated before. No one's ever expected them to. And 
Even though everyone here knows and has seen on TV what the police are capable of, these queer people have had enough, and the TPF can see they're enjoying their retaliation. They were kicked out of the bar over an hour ago, and they're still playing in the park outside, screaming proudly. The TPF takes to the crowd with their nightsticks, breaking up groups of people. Pine is sure this is the end of the night, and he and Smith head back to the 6th precinct to log evidence and process their prisoners and get to bed. Howard Smith speedwalks to his village voice office on the corner and watches the rest happen from his desk. He tries to write about what he just experienced while he's still watching it unfold. Craig sees a new set of TPF officers coming up Christopher, again forming a wedge. Traffic stops. The crowd Craig stands in, they slowly back up at the same speed the TPF marches toward them. Only Christopher Park is between them. As the patrol force moves in on Christopher, people vanish, off, into the crowd, down the streets behind. Craig runs. The whole mob of people turns and runs up Christopher Street. The TPF stops. They've scared the fairies off. Hey, sis. The TPF officers look back towards 7th Avenue. Oh, you like that? All the queers are there. A mob of hundreds behind them. Hey! They had run up Christopher to Waverly, passing Julius down 10th to 7th, and are now standing behind the TPF. The officers turn and chase the crowd around the block. Again, the mob turns on the TPF, running down side streets and sneaking up behind them. The officers break up into smaller packs, as the Stonewallers do too. People in cars and village passers-by stop and watch. Some people stop just to take up space and block the police. Some cars pretend to be stuck. The police can't clear the place. And if they can't clear the people, they can't bring in more cops. Especially on the very narrow street outside the stone wall. A car is turned over, putting the main intersection, 7th and Christopher, and thus 4th, Grove, Washington, Waverly, and 10th, all at a standstill. Tonight, the whole world isn't watching. Yet. This isn't a typical protest. There are no TV cameras to show the world a demonstration. This one is just for us. Queers link arms and kick, camping up their old songs, singing, We are the village girls. We wear our hair in curls. We wear our dungarees above our Nelly knees. Until the fire hoses are turned on the crowd. Yet, the groups continue to bait the TPF down streets and around corners, from Waverly, slipping down Gay Street and around Christopher and back onto Waverly. One person grabs a TPF officer's attention, another throws bottles at the officer from behind. Oh, Alice Blue Gown, you were expecting me? Kick lines defiantly tease the marching men. These cops have never seen a kick line at a protest. Nobody riots like queers. The Stonewall girls kick and kick and let the boys in blue get as close as they can, and then they run. Most of them usually get away. From above, in his friend's apartment on Grove, Danny Garvin watches ten cops in stances with their feet spread apart, man-spreading, 
as about 20 boys roll up their pant legs into knickers, link arms, and kick, singing, We are the village girls. We wear our hair in curls. We don't wear underwear to show our pubic hair. The cops charge on them and smack them all down. They're pulled away into cop cars. Future activist and queer film historian Vito Russo climbs up in a tree in Christopher Park to get a better view of it all. Curious passersby are even beaten and dragged, bloody, to the police cars. Store windows are broken. All the trash cans are set on fire. There's no sense of time. It's just mayhem. Joyous, terrifying, angry, queer mayhem. For all of it. For everything they've endured. Around 4 a.m., the crowd thins out. The taunting of the officers slows. The game is over. Residents of the village come outside to see the damage. Villagers gather on their corners and sit on the stoops. Small groups form as fascinated people stop Stonewall patrons walking home, exhausted and in a daze. What happened? Cops stand around the neighborhood, too, like stormtroopers. It's quiet but there's an exciting energy in the air. As everyone walks home under the full moon, Bob and Magoo sit in Christopher Park, waiting for the sun to rise. The kids tend to their minor wounds with makeshift bandages. Trash cans smolder. Shattered glass covers the streets they fought on, glittering in the twilight street lamps. Word spreads across the city. Next week, Stonewall, Night 2, Gay Power. And all because Judy Garland died. Kidding, that's not true. If you're into queer history, check out my Patreon for tons of bonus stuff from all three seasons of Queer Serial, including lots of bonus episodes and a spinoff miniseries, and research dives and interviews and all sorts of semi-naughty vintage queer content. And if you're liking the show, I would so love for you to give her a little review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that more folks can find the show when they're looking for queer history. Thank you so much. I'm going to slice up those You can also follow the show at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode. It's packed. Also, Instagram.com slash Queer Serial works too if you don't have an Instagram account. If you were here to find out who threw the first brick at Stonewall, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to need a time machine to find out if there were even bricks there to begin with. I am happy to dispel some myths for you, but if you'd like to learn some more on your own about the Stonewall Rebellion, I recommend the PBS documentary Stonewall Uprising and David Carter's 2004 book Stonewall, although he does neglect to include Sylvia Rivera in his research. The 1984 documentary Before Stonewall and its sequel After Stonewall are also fantastic. 
I absolutely do not recommend any of the Stonewall movies. Also, you should check out Eric Marcus's podcast, Making Gay History. They did a whole season in 2019 for Stonewall's 50th anniversary. Um, They cut together his interviews with people who were there and tell the whole story of the riot. It's fabulous. There's also this great moment in the Morty Manfred episode where he talks about the moment the first window broke. It's beautiful. Also, Kay Lehusen interviews Craig Rodwell about that night. Also fascinating. Anyway, more resources for the show can be found on my website at QueerSerial.com. Thank you to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and upcoming projects on the way. If you would like to support the show, please join my Patreon at patreon.com slash QueerSerial for lots of bonus content. Or if you just want to donate, you can go to QueerSerial.com slash donate. Thank you all very much. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Teachers, feel free to message me on any social media or email me at QueerSerial at gmail.com if you would like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors, another huge thanks to all of you who recorded during the pandemic. It means so much to me. But lots of folks have been recording lines for the Stonewall episodes for years, actually, as we've recorded the last two seasons. Just about everyone from the entire series is in the big final episodes. So here we go. Opera Jean was voiced by Jacqueline Keeling, Tommy Lanigan-Schmidt by Andrew Casey, Inspector Seymour Pine by Garrett Williams, Cops by Mike Lysak, Steve Camp, Strangely busy in there tonight, Evan Camp, Mike Kanish, Tina Munoz-Pandaya, and Adrian Barker. The voice on the radio by my dad, Matt Camp, Diesel Dyke by Jen Freitag, Fuck off! Craig Rodwell by Sean Calusa, Guy in the Red T-Shirt by Olgi Fryer, Let her go! <laughs> <laughs> Michael Fader by Dan Unser. Pig. Bob Kohler by Owen Keenan. Radio Reporter by Tim O'Reilly. Gay Guy in the Car Covered in Oranges by Sam Pancake. What? (laughs) You motherfucking bitch. Boston Daughter of Belitis by Faye Camp, my granny. What's going on? Martha Shelley by Eliana Stone. Various fabulous village girls and street queens were played by Jack Murphy, Grab his cock. Eddie Miller, Grab it. Lucian Grateri, Nico Valdez, Samuel Miles, oh, Lily Laws got you, girl. Connor Good, Julian Hall, Will Roscoe, Jerry, you're not gonna believe this. Gage Kyle and Paula Harrington. I'm gonna slice up those motherfuckers' tires. You got a knife? And my star every week, John Roth, as Village Voice reporter Howard Smith. My biological and queer family and friends, and even some heteros, thank you all so very much for being a part of this. It means so much to me. Oh, and of course, Sylvia Rivera, as herself. Audio use courtesy of Making Gay History. Find the Making Gay History podcast on all major podcast platforms at makinggayhistory.com. Highly recommended. Why the fuck are we doing all this for? Everybody's looking at each other, but why do we have to keep on constantly putting up with this? People were very angry for so long. I mean, how long can you live in a closet? The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Thiel. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. Bye. Glittering in the twilight street street lamps. <laughs>